Dell interviews the best up-and-coming computer geeks. NCAA coaches hardly take a break before they start courting the best blue-chip high school talent. Where does God go to interview those he is touching for leadership? Turn with our study leader, Dave Wilson, to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and let's find out together. As I look around our household, I've got little Elliot. She's only a month old. I could carry around like a football in my hand. Then I've got Scarlett with a Rapunzel long wig on. I've got James and Noah. By the time Friday came, everybody except Jonathan and Leslie and their girls were home. So we were jam-packed. Anybody have that feeling? Got all the different age groups and everything? Did you know that in the last few days, you've been in one of the most intensive training camps for leadership in the most important place where we need leaders in the world. Did you know that? You see, our culture right now is in a great crisis of leadership, like Wall Street, where I was raised as a kid. I used to go up to Manhattan, up to the financial district. In fact, I remember being on the treasury steps, and my dad said, hey, you know, Dave, you need to witness for Christ. I said, man, I'm scared to death, Dad. He said, let it rip. So I'm up there where George Washington started the first treasury of the United States and trying to witness for Christ. And yet I remember years ago being in this place, thinking of how powerful Wall Street was. Well, what do you think about Wall Street today? Wall Street's become kind of a tough thing, and most of us hope things recover a little bit. But I've been getting a lot of the Harvard Business Review, and they tell me that what we need is innovation. This whole article is about spotlight on innovation. The problem is that we need innovation. And if you work for Dell Computers, if you work for Google, if you work for HP, my son Joel showed me his new HP computer. Man, you can flip over the screen and touch it, does all kinds of things and stuff. And it's amazing, I think, of how far we've come. We're definitely an innovating culture. But what brought Wall Street down? There's tons of innovation. As a, as a nation, we've been, become one of the most innovative countries there is. And right when we thought that the Japanese were going to take over the world economy, suddenly we come up with with Intel chips and all kinds of explosions and and nanotechnology is coming. And and all of a sudden, a whole new world opened up. The United States is incredibly gifted at innovation, but it's innovation that the total key. And I want to say that I think innovation really is important. And we should really pray in that. I I believe the Holy Spirit of God is is the ultimate creator Every bit of creativity that brings bring health and, and goodness and prosperity is a gift from the Lord. Innovation is, is ultimately in the heart and in the mind of our Heavenly Father. Isn't that awesome? But I don't think it's the most important thing in leadership. You see, our culture right now, we're so hungry for leadership. And for us, leadership means that we have success and numbers. We have sex financially. If you're in athletics, I mean, if you're in the NCAA or the pro, pro ranks, it's all about winning. That's what Vince Lombardi said a long time ago. But I want you to really think hard, is that really the essence of of being a great leader? As a culture, we're having a really hard time with long-term leadership. We're having a hard time with steadiness. We become a people that we worship our leaders and raise them up and rejoice in them, and then we totally trash them. I want to ask you, like, where do you look for leaders? If I want to look for... Business leaders, where do I look? I repeatedly get mail from the Chicago Business School. Come to Chicago. You can learn to be a leader. In fact, to be honest with you, a lot of evangelicalism has really looked to Harvard Business School and Chicago Business School. We become a culture that says leaders are found in the business world. 
And it has tremendous influence upon what happens in the household of God. Tony Dungy was the first African-American to win the Super Bowl. First African-American coach. He was the coach of the Indianapolis Colts. An incredible guy. He's a really close friend of, of our dear friend, Tony Evans, right up here in Oak Cliff. And uh, it's interesting. Tony is one of the most successful NFL coaches that's ever lived. But he writes about ambition, and he says, you know, ambition can go awry. In fact, he said that what's really important, when I was an NFL coach, when I came to the Indianapolis Colts, I told all of my players that when their kids were off, they were welcome anywhere in our facility. They could come to the practice. They could be in the locker room. And he said, none of my players and none of my coaches took me seriously. Till we were having a coach's game, a coach's meeting, when suddenly there was this horrible ruckus and one of the assistant coaches, what in the world has happened? It's like the roof has caved in. And one of the other coaches says, oh, those are the Dungy kits. And then Coach Dungy said, then my coaches and my players knew I was serious. That when I told them that you put in your day's work with the Indianapolis Colts and you need to really perform on Sunday, you need to become excellent in all that you do. But I don't expect to see you here after hours. I don't expect you getting here early. Because if your household isn't in place, then you can win Super Bowl after Super Bowl after Super Bowl. And you're not going to be a leader in the place that counts most of all as leadership. Now, if Tony Dungy knew that when he was coaching the Indianapolis Colts, where did he get that idea from? I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and you might not have realized it, but you've been in, if you're in business, if you're in education, but most of all, I want all of you, because you're in the household of God. We've been doing a series on what is. We started out, what is marriage? We started talking about what is family. Then we moved into what is the church, and we talked about the fact that God calls the church, he calls the church the household of faith. And the reason that we've done this whole series of, and we've been spending week after week on it, why have we been talking about that? Because I believe that Satan is powerfully attacking, especially the American church. And the way that he's doing it is he's attacking our marriages. The latest Time Magazine article says marriage is going out. Most kids don't get married till they're 36 if they're guys. And the girls don't get married till they're 34. Say, well, how do they do that? Well, they use preventatives and they shack up together from 18 and trying several different partners. Why do they do that? Because we're distrustful. There's been so much divorce and so much unfaithfulness. Who knows what to live for? And we're also, as a culture, saying you live for your own personal passion. You live for your own personal fulfillment. So there's tremendous discussion, even among unbelieving sociologists, are saying, what's going to happen? Where are we going to go? And I believe this is an incredible opportunity for, for us as the people of God. I believe there's going to be an incredible vacuum. We travel all over the place. We're, we're, we're not with our nuclear families. They get divided out like crazy. I believe that one of the greatest ways to reach people in the next decade is if you'll listen to what I want to teach you this morning. Because I believe there's going to be a tremendous hunger for there to be real love. Real relationships with people. I think people are going to get tired of sitting at restaurants and not talking to each other while they text message on their iPhones. 
I really believe the next generation is going to say is, let's chuck all this technology away. We haven't looked anybody in the eyeball. We haven't had real hugs. iPhones don't give very good hugs. You don't really have close friends when you have a 1,000 people on Facebook. And I want you to know there's going to be an incredible vacuum. I think it's already started. Just a hunger for people that are really together, people that really love. And I want to talk to you this morning about the qualities, the qualities that produce real intimacy, the qualities that produce real closeness with one another. And these are the qualities. When I ask the Apostle Paul, I say, the Apostle Paul, where do I look to find leaders for the most important group in all the universe? The group that's going to be the temple of God forever and ever and ever. Do you realize this morning that if you're a young person sitting here or an older person and everything in between, you are part of the most important group in all the world. It's called the household of God. It's eternal. Super Bowls don't mean anything compared to the household of God. Your business, Google, is nothing compared to the household of God. Google's only been around just a a few years. What you're a part of had been from the time of Adam and Eve when God made a promise for a great redeemer to come that started the household of God. It comes all the way through the New Testament. And now you're part of this very special church called the Bride of Christ. Now, where do we look to find leaders in the household of Christ? Well, first of all, we need to ask ourselves, who are we going to trust? be honest with you, I think there's a crisis of trust in what we're going to do right now. I want you to open up to 1 Timothy chapter 3. You say, why are we going to do this? Because there was a day when the church was just born, just a few years before, and I want you to open up to 1 Timothy chapter 3, because in the city of Ephesus, a pastor called Timothy received a scroll. And it was a letter. It might have been on papyri. It might have been on a little bit more parchment, more durable material. A messenger had brought it from the Apostle Paul. And Paul is very soon going to die. And men that are getting ready to die that have devoted their whole life to what he wants to talk to us about, the household of faith, it's really important what he's going to tell us. And he begins 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 with these words. Here is a trustworthy saying. You say, Dave, what's important about that? Because when I talked to you the last time we were together, Paul stressed the same thing. This is a trustworthy statement. This is a trustworthy teaching. What kind of teaching do you trust? I want all of you to ask yourself. I need to ask myself, who do I trust? Who do I look look to? Do I really believe when we open up this book this morning that I can trust it? Do you think you can? That's one of your biggest faith commitments. What I'm going to read to you and what we're going to talk about, and I just want to be the beginning of the conversation that God's Holy Spirit had with you for this week. But it all begins with who do you trust? Like, do I trust the Harvard Business Review more than I trust what I'm going to read to you? I think a lot of people do today. Do I trust what Texas Monthly tells me about how to be a great quarterback and a great football team? Do I trust that more? Do I trust my own training in my own studies? Do I trust my professional training? And one of the things I grow older, the Holy Spirit's laying it upon my heart. David, build your life on the breathed out word of God. So whatever we do with a church family, whatever you do as a father in your family, which is where we're really going to focus today, it needs to begin with what the Apostle Paul is going to teach to us, going to teach us today. And he says, this is trustworthy. 
And as I grow older, I have so many people that proved to be untrustworthy. How about you? So many people I thought it was going to really work. And I just want to share with you, as a guy that had been in the household of God since I was five years of age, I was teaching what I'm going to teach you the next few minutes when I was just a young teenager. And I taught it through my 20s and all the way up to the present. I want to, I want to challenge you that going back over getting ready to teach you this morning, the Holy Spirit breathes through this again and says, David, you got to have these qualities in your life. This is what, is what holds families together. This is what holds churches together. This is what's going to really bless the body of Christ around the world. It's a trustworthy statement. Second of all, an incredible thing. You know, a lot of you aren't going to be able to play quarterback in the NFL. In fact, to be honest with you, none of you in this room will play quarterback in the NFL, probably, unless we have one of our young men that's going to be able to do it. Maybe one of our girls, I don't know. I'm never going to play quarterback in the NFL. Played a couple years in college, never going to play in the NFL. Look around the room, there's, there's several of my buddies that have their doctorate degree. To be honest with you, I sat with seven people in the first year of doctoral studies. We had a kid there from Princeton, which is the leading Ivy League school. He didn't make it. Didn't get through our program. So you got all this stuff. Not many of us are going to be able to get a doctorate degree. But I want to share with you that's really not that important because a lot of you are gifted in totally different areas. And that's what I love about this next part. Some of you say, like, one of the things I'm afraid that's happening in our church family would say, unless you're like Dave Lowry and Dave Wurtson and you went to Dallas Theological Center, you can't be a leader here. And I want you to know that that's wrong. One of the things I want to empower you for, every one of you God in this room, it says, if any man aspires to the office of an overseer, look at what it says. If any man sets his heart, this is one of the most important goals. You men say, how can I set my goal? How can I have a passion? How can I have a vision for something that will count? This is it. The Apostle Paul says, if anyone sets his heart, on being an overseer. Now, some of you might have the translation bishop, and I want to share with you how words change and how it shapes. Because the word bishop in English connotes guys with long robes, guys with collars. it, it, It communicates an ecclesiastical professional. And that's what's happened in 2,000 years. But when the Apostle Paul sent this letter to the church of Ephesus and young Timothy read it to the church family, I want you to know that they did not hear bishop with someone that was a professional. You say, how do I know that? Because it says if any man aspires to this office, and not everybody can aspire. Like, you know, if you're married, for example, if you're from a Roman Catholic background, then you can't be a bishop because you're already married. That's it. That's what's happened in 2,000 years of church history. If you're Anglican, the bishops are a special position. And I want you to understand that I'm not going to debate about what church structures ought to be. But I think it's real important for us to get back to the beginning. And I want every single one of you dadded in this room. I want every single one of you men in this room to realize if anyone aspires to become an overseer, we desperately need overseers. Our culture lives today just for the present and just for themselves. We desperately need to have a group of leaders that really oversee and care for others. And it begins with your family. 
Like as a grandfather, I need to be an overseer for little H.A. I need to be an overseer for James and for Scarlett. I need to hang in there. And we're going to talk about what that means. It really focuses on your character. So the Apostle Paul is saying that, number one, he's given trustworthy advice. Number two, he says it's accessible to all. And then he says this, if anybody desires to be an overseer, it's a noble task, which is focusing on this is one of the greatest visions you can have. Now he lays out, here are the traits that you need to look for in a household leader. And twice in this passage, he says, where do you look to find leaders for the body of Christ? And twice, in both elders and in deacons, he says, look for those that manage their own families well. So what we want to be praying, and I want to challenge all of you men, this is really strategic. He says, these are the qualities. Let's go over some of those qualities. Number one, he says, if you're going to become a leader in the body of Christ, and it begins in your home as you manage your family well, it says, number one, you need to be above reproach. They must be above reproach. Now, some of you would say, Dave, I didn't get saved till later. And man, in my past life, I was really immoral. And I'm kind of like the big star for the Rangers. And I've had drug problems. And I've had girl problems, women problems. I could never be a leader. I want you to see that it says they must be. It's a present tense. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 talks about when Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. It says some of you used to be thieves. Some of you used to be murderers. The man writing this text murdered Christians, and yet he would be eminently qualified, and he was a leader. He was an elder in the body of Christ. So I don't want any one of you men to say, hey, I've blown it so completely in the past that I can never go on and become an example and become a person with character that can be a leader in the body of Christ. I think that's one of Satan's biggest lies. First Timothy chapter 1, Paul says, I'm the greatest of sinners. And Christ saved me to be an example that no one could say that they'd missed out on the grace of God. So some of you daddies, some of you grandfathers, you're letting Satan sit on your lap and say, you can't go on to Christ's likeness. You can't ever be above reproach. Oh, yes, you can. By amazing grace, you can. And what it means is that there's no water gate. There's nothing I can grab a hold of in your life that is secret. The amazing thing is, as a believer, you can confess your sins. You can make it open. And then Christ can really work. Christ can really, really work. And that's what it means to be above reproach. So none of you, none of you can say, well, I have such a bad past. I can never do this. Oh, yeah, you can. Through the power of Jesus Christ, through the power of his spirit working in your life, you as a man can be the kind of a daddy in your home you need to be. You can be the kind of a grandfather you need to be. You can start building through the power of grace in your life. You can become a man that's above reproach. So don't let Satan sit on your lap saying, you can't do this, because that's a lie. It begins with sexuality. As a grandfather, as I hold H.J. in my lap, 10 minutes of indiscretion, Not being a one-woman man, which is what the phrase is. They said they must be. Look what it says. They must be above reproach. They must be the husband of of but one wife. The phrase is literally there in Greek. They must be a one-woman man. And I love that expression. The very powerful thing. And every time I hold one of my grandkids, I think, I say, thank you, Lord. I need to be a one-woman man. Are you a one-woman man today? When your wife goes to the mall with you, where are your eyes? 
When you go to the cowboy game, where are your eyes? Do you relate to younger women as your sisters, like Paul tells Timothy later on? Do you relate to older women as mothers? Do you relate relationally, or are women just objects to be used? Every one of you men in this room wrestle with that. It's the dark side of sexuality, and it is from the pit of hell. But the power of the Spirit, when you were born again into God's family, God's Spirit came into you to make you a one-woman man. In Adam, we are not one-woman men. But in Christ, we are. Amen? And that's really important. The world says, oh, you can be this kind of man. You can lust after other women. And it looks so great in the core lights ad. It looks so great. It doesn't work in real life. So I want to challenge you. The Holy Spirit needs to come upon our church family. He wants to create men. And this is the way we're going to reach our society. When we have the power of spirit cause us to become one women men that are devoted to our wives, that can have grandkids, and we're still devoted to our wives. Jesus' resurrection power came into our lives to give us that kind of moral purity sexually. You think he can do it? Boy, that's a great objective to have. That's what we need to look for. Then he goes on. It says, okay, they need to be temperate, self-controlled and respectable. Those goes together. Temperate means that you're free from beclouding influences. You can't be easy on medicinal marijuana and be a leader. You can make up all kinds of rules on that. I I guarantee you, if people go, we got to choose a leader. I've even been with barefooters that smoke a little marijuana. We say, no, we're out of the boat. You don't need to be easy to barefoot ski. Sure, you need to go slow and gentle, but you don't need any artificial substances to make that happen. And so I've had some young men that just said, stop the boat right now. I'm done. I don't care if you're a world champion. My teenagers aren't going to be exposed to beclouding influences. They're going to learn to do this the honest way. That's what it means in Little League sports. You don't take steroids that that begin to hurt your body. You don't take drugs. You don't want to be in a situation where you're beclouded. And this word is used for temperance. You've all heard of temperance. It relates to being tempered with the use of alcohol. But Paul uses a word that means you're tempered in all different kinds of things. There's no beclouding influences in your life. So he says temperance, self-control. This is the word prudent. It's all, it brings in the whole thing of Proverbs that you need to be someone that acts with forethought, someone that has wisdom in their life. The next word he says is that you're respectable. There's an orderliness in your life. This is the word, ladies, from which you get the word cosmetics, which means that you're putting order in your outward appearance. And we're thankful for that. And what it means in a more general way is that you men, that as you're relating to your wife, as you're relating to your kids, as you're relating to people, people see an orderliness, a togetherness in your life. All leaders have that. All daddies have that. The next word is a word that means hospitable. This is something that's desperately needed in our church. We need to love strangers. Midlothians really changed. It's not the same town that it was when I came here. So if you don't like strangers, you just move away. You go somewhere else. You try to recapture because you don't really love strangers. One of the things my mom and dad taught me from the time I was a little boy, we had strangers in our home for Thanksgiving. 
not just good friends. My dad would have strangers in there. I didn't even know. And I want us to get really burdened. I hear at times, Midlothian Bible Church is awesome as family, but man, if you're not blunt, or if you're not part of the gang that's been there a long time, it's hard to get in. What are we going to do about that? We're going to pray. Some of you that have extroverted personality need to grab hold of those strangers. It means you love strangers. You don't evaluate, well, should they be here? Are they part of a group? In your small groups, you don't want to be communicating. No, you can't be part of our group. We got our little in thing. That's not going to work, my brothers and sisters. We need to love strangers. You got to reach across barriers. You're in a church family. We're trying to reach in Iraq. That's really reaching strangers. That's loving strangers. But it also needs to be right here in Midlothian, in the stores we're in, in Walmart, and all the different stores that we're reaching out to strangers. We commune to the Holy Spirit. We want you. We're going to even invite you in our homes as a first stepping stone to what it means to reaching you for Christ. Loving strangers. Able to teach. That's not just what I do. But leaders know God's word. And you can do this, man. My dad never graduated from high school, and he knew this book called. He read it every single year. And my dad, I could take my dad to Dallas Seminary. My dad could compete with anybody there in knowing God's word. And he never, never graduated from high school. They had to give him for his Bible school because he got so involved in evangelism, they had to give him an honorary certificate because he was so busy reaching people for Christ. I want every one of you men to know it's not academic knowledge of the Scripture, as important as that is. And obviously we don't demean that, but I want every single one of you men to know you can read this book, and if you listen to God's Spirit teaching you every day, you say, Dave, how do I do that? It means today you decide there's going to be time every day where I read 1 Timothy 3. Dave taught it to us, but I don't believe what Dave shared completely. So you're going to read 1 Timothy 1 all the way through to chapter 6. And every one of you men can carve out time this week, every day, to listen to God's voice in his word. And your Christian life's never going to grow till you do that. Like, I can't teach you enough in this little bit of time to produce this character in you. It's impossible. No other teacher can either. If you go to church to receive your weekly fix, you're addicted to a false kind of spirituality. Because your precious daddy wants to meet with you every single day. And if you meet with him every single day and start reading, don't just take bits and pieces. It's 66 books. They all stand their own. You start reading the Bible beginning at the beginning of a book and going to the end of it and making notes about things the Lord is speaking to you about and questions you have. You do it over time and you'll be able to teach. Ask Carol Thomas. When I first met him, he was a cowboy rodeo rider and a farmer. And now almost all of you look upon him as a staid, godly elder. That's because every single day, Carol was in the Word of God. He showed that when I first started working with him as a young man, he was passionate for it. Kim Lewis that just gave the announcement. Kim was just barely out of his 20s when I met him. We spent time going through these characteristics talking about him. And I've seen Kim over the, all of our lifetime since then, since the early 70s, in this word. You can do it, man. Every one of you can do it. If you don't learn through your eyes, that's fine. Then learn through your ears. There's all kinds of audio tapes. We've stressed that to you as a church family. 
you can actually now get it enacted out for you. So you, there's all kinds of things you can do to be able to teach. It says, not given to drunkenness, not... If you drank too much, men, you were not a husband or a daddy or a grandfather. You say, no, I was fine. I needed to take a little Jack Daniels to stay steady. If you took too much Jack Daniels and it influenced you, then you were not a good husband because you were disengaged. You were, you were ethanol logged. It's not going to work. And I'm serious about it. The Bible's not teetotaling. All God needed to say, not given to any wine. But he didn't. So don't use that excuse. But one thing that I'm really concerned about, a bunch of my evangelical friends that never drank at Southern Baptist or Bible churches when they were kids, now they drink. Because now they find out, hey, I can do that. And they drink too much. Don't do it. You say, why shouldn't I do it? Because you're not a good daddy when you do it. I'm not safe holding HA if I'm a little bit loaded. And that's what the Bible is very honest. Just don't be given to that, either as men or women. It says not violent, and if you're drunk, some of you had fights. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but some of you had fights in your home. By God's grace, we came close, but we didn't. But some of you had really bad fights, and if you mix a little alcohol in it, you're done. Like God's spirit can help you and we can help you to overcome your anger and it's tough, but we can do it. But if you drink, we're gonna have a really tough time. Violence, anger, being a striker, being someone that's pugnacious. Then he says this, but instead, instead of being a violent person that's drunk and hurting people, you're gentle. You're not a quarrelsome fighter. Notice how important that is. At a table, as you have different family members in, and they have different views politically, they have different views about the economy, do you end up fighting like cats and dogs? Leaders learn not to quarrel. They learn how to back out of fights that you're not going to win. They learn to say, hey, this really isn't about communicating truth. This is about just boxing and winning points. Wise leaders learn to back away from that. They're not quarrelsome. They don't have a tongue that's like a sword. It says they're not a lover of money. That means we don't do what we do because of money. We're not motivated by materialism. We must manage our own families and see that our children obey with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? And then Paul closes. You can't be a recent convert because it takes a little time to grow in these qualities by the power of the Spirit. And if you put someone into leadership when they're just a new convert, they can fall under the same pride. They become conceited as the devil did, and they'll fall. The final characteristic, if you have these kind of qualities, you develop a good reputation with outsiders so that you will not fall into disgrace and the trap of the devil. You can read the deacon qualities, and they rehash, and they go back over the same qualities. I want to challenge you as men today, especially the men, because men need to be one woman kind of a man. You need to be a gentle man. You need to be a temperate man. You need to be a person that's not pugnacious. By the power of the Spirit, what's desperately needed in your home, what's desperately needed in our church, what's desperately needed in our society is character. And that's what I talked to you about today. To be honest with you, as we close, every one of those qualities, if I was speaking to a Greek-Roman audience, all the Greeks and Romans would go... You say, Dave, I thought you told us the Greek culture was immoral. Yeah, it was. The Roman culture was very immoral, but they still had the same values for their civic leaders, 
I can read all this in philosophy, Roman and Greek. You say, well, Dave, what's the difference for us? Paul actually took the qualities that Seneca taught. He, he gave the same qualities that Plutarch taught. You say, well, Dave, what's the difference? Jesus' death, he forgives us our sins. Isn't that awesome? Can put your sins farther than the east and from the west. So every man in this room and every woman in this room, you can have a pure, clean, new heart. And then what's incredible is Jesus comes to live inside of you and he gives you resurrection power. And what it means is you leave this room after fellowshipping with God's people. Then you can read this list. And as I'm sitting there at the table and Mary comes in at the breakfast table and she sets down an orange container of orange juice, only she points at it. It isn't orange juice. It's orange concentrate. And if you know Mary and I, like Mary's really into details. If you want orange juice, you don't bring orange concentrate. So I'm a generalist. When I walk into Walmart, if it's in an orange container and the price is relatively good, I grab it. I don't even know that it's orange concentrate. And you all laugh about that, but that's what you guys fight over. I'm a generalist, married really into details. And she gave me the look across the table, and I can bite her head off. But by God's grace, after being married for over 40 years, the Holy Spirit really is doing something. We didn't kill each other. Mary and I didn't kill each other with all these grandkids in our home. We had an incredible time. We had sickness in the house. We had people bopping in. It was an incredible time. And we didn't get pugnacious. We didn't strike each other. We didn't get drunk. I want to bless you guys. Guys, Jesus' resurrection power, yeah, we fail. Yeah, we still get in conflict. But isn't it awesome that we have the Holy Spirit in our life and says, David, don't strike. And I did give Mary some dirty looks, and I asked her to forgive me publicly for that. But we made it pretty good. How about you? One of the greatest needs of our church family, especially you younger dads, I want you to step right in with us and make these character traits through the power of the resurrection what you're going to live for. This is what church leadership is. It's not about titles. It's not about who has the authority, who has the power here. It's about who is close to the power of Jesus. And we're seeing these kind of qualities. And if you see those kind of qualities, you're going to become an incredible witness in touching unbelievers' lives that desperately want to see in this next generation that kind of integrity, that kind of sincerity, that kind of real relational life change.